Please turn with me to the text for this morning's sermon, Psalm number 50, verses 1 through 15. Psalm number 50, verses 1 through 15. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Round about Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will accept no bull from your house, nor he-goat from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all that is in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Father, before we're done this morning, I will be commending to this people the possibility of taking some very serious vows before you. The calling upon you, the sacrificing of thanksgiving, And so I pray from the very outset now that you would be the one at work in hearts, that you would come with power, that your sword would be wielded by your spirit and do your mighty saving, delivering, transforming, establishing, healing work in every heart. Into your hands, Lord, we commit these next 30 minutes. Be here, I pray, with omnipotent zeal for your glory, magnified in your mercy toward us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This psalm that Randall just read is a word to the Lord from us concerning how a wrong view of God ruins worship, ruins the way we handle our money, And it contains a right view of God and therefore transforms worship and transforms the way we handle our money. I chose this text several weeks ago with a very 
specific intention of addressing the financial crises of your personal life and our church life. And so let me outline for you where we are financially as a church and then move to the root of the matter, which is God. The financial situation is this. Uh, we have a budget commitment at Bethlehem of $1,064,000 in 1989, which amounts to about $19.23 a week for the adult worshiping attenders of this church, or $2.75 a day, or $1.84 for local and $0.91 cents a day for missions. We are $160,000 behind at this point in the year in that $19.23 a week commitment, which means that we need $35,000 a week to make our budget commitments in 1989, which is about $33 a week for the adult worshiping community of this church, But when you add the $10,000 a week that we have as a goal to build a new sanctuary on top of the budget, it comes to about $43 a week, which which is a tithe of an annual salary of $22,364. And I have thought that since we have a lot of students and we have a lot of young people and we have a lot of retired people, it's likely we do not average $22,364 per adult worshiping member of income per year. Now, that means three things. Number one, you are giving very well. 64% more than you were two years ago because of the addition of the building program. The second thing it means is that reaching our goal and not failing in any of our missionary and ministry commitments means many of us will have to go well beyond the tithe, which, of course, is nothing new to many of us as well. But many more will have to discover this dimension of sacrifice and this dimension of giving. And the third thing it means is that God is the root issue in this matter. God, who is the miracle worker and owner of all things, is the one we must focus on. And that's what I want to do in our message this morning. And so I hope you've still got your Bibles open to Psalm 50. Let me describe the scene for you and then move into the content of our text. It's a courtroom scene. The heaven is the ceiling of the court and the earth is is below and the fire of God coming forth from Zion are the lanterns hanging down or the indirect lighting or whatever lights courtrooms in these days. And uh, God comes forward to judge his people. Now, in this courtroom, God happens to fill three roles. God is the judge. Second half of verse six. God himself is judge. God is also the clerk in this courtroom. At least that's what I judge him to be. I've been in court now a few times about this rescue stuff. And incidentally, I called up Judge Hardigan's office yesterday to find out when I had to do my two days time. I make this real open here. I'm going to jail at the end of October for a couple of days. We'll talk more about that later. But uh, I'm sure it surprises some of you visitors that this pastor is going to jail. But 
pray for me because I intend to do some real great evangelism. You can take two paperback books and uh, your knees. Close parenthesis. He's the clerk of court. And uh, I get that from verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones. In other words, he's standing up in the front of the court calling the defendants. Come on up here now. Stand in front of this bench. This is where you're supposed to stand when the judge talks to you. And God is also not only the judge, the clerk, but he's the chief witness. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify. Mark that word. I will testify against you. Uh, You can also see from that verse, my people, who the defendants are in this court. God's the judge, the clerk, the witness, and his people, Israel, are the defendants. They are on trial here. Now, once that scene is established, what you get is the indictment, the sentence, the rationale for the sentence, the uh, prescribed correction, and the ultimate goal of the judge in this trial setting. And that's what I want to look at with you, verse at a time. And let's begin with the indictment. Verse 8. Now, he doesn't give it directly. He gives it indirectly by saying what it's not, first of all. Verse 8 says, I do not reprove you. You're not on trial. For your sacrifices, your burnt offerings are continually before me. In other words... The issue here in this trial is not that you stopped bringing me sacrifices. You bring them all the time. Now, you've got to read a little bit farther in order to catch on what the issue is. It's a mindset in the giver. That's the problem. They are on trial for a mindset that insults God. And in a word, we'll see it as we move on, the mindset is that they have put God in the position of a needy God, a deficient God, a God that is dependent upon them for his food. And they're coming to God with these sacrifices with the mindset that God would just be at a loss if we didn't bring him what we bring him. He would be at a loss if we didn't have our service. He would be at a loss if he didn't have our worship. That's the mindset that's on trial in this courtroom. It is insulting to God. Now, we'll see that more clearly as we move on. But let's go to the sentence. After the indictment comes the sentence. Verse 9. God, the judge, says, I will accept no bull from your house, no he-goat from your folds. So what's the sentence? The sentence is to nullify their worship. This is tremendously serious. It would be as though God came into this room and looked at me and then looked at you and said, until your mindsets change, this event on Sunday morning is worthless in my eyes. You can go ahead and do it if you want, but I am not interested and it has no impact in heaven, brings me no delight, no pleasure. I am intensely displeased with your life as a church on Sunday morning. Now that would just end it. I mean, we'd be done for if God said that. That's what he's saying here. I won't take any more of your offerings. So that's the sentence. Now why? What's the rationale or the explanation of this sentence? Verses 10 to 13 come. And this is the heart of the text. We read about God and who he is in this text. Now, the rationale for this this sentence has two parts. One in verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. 
for the world and all that is in it is mine. Rationale part two, verse 13. As a matter of fact, I never get hungry. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Answer, no. Now, let's go back up and talk about the mindset for just a bit more, because here you can see it expressed very clearly, indirectly, through his criticisms. The mindset is evidently that they were viewing God as uh, hungry, having needs, and depending on his worshipers to satisfy his needs. And this is a great insult to an all-sufficient God. The mindset of coming into a worship service to meet God's needs is offensive to the Almighty. He is very displeased if you come here on Sunday morning with the notion that he is wringing his hands and quite at a loss until you make some contribution into his coffers. He's never at a loss. He is totally self-sufficient. The issue is not whether... We meet God's needs. God will get his mission done. He's going to evangelize this world. He might leave this church behind in doing it or leave a whole denomination behind in doing it. But he will gather a people, inspire their hearts, the fire needed to get done, and do his work. But he doesn't depend on any given Christian or any given church as though we were indispensable. And any mindset that comes into a worship service not reckoning with the all-sufficient overflow of the fountain of God is offensive to God and goes on trial immediately before the judge of all the earth. Now, his response to this mindset is to say, I don't need any of your sacrifices for two reasons. And now we're back to the rationale again. The first reason I don't need any of your sacrifices is that I never get hungry. I never eat. I'm always totally satisfied in who I am and what I do for my glory. I am complete. I am a volcano of supply and joy and riches. I am not a little trough that needs the bucket of your contribution. I am an ocean of sufficiency for thirsty people. It says in Acts 17.25, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. He never gets hungry. That's his first rationale for the sentence. Second, he says, verse 12, if he did get hungry... He wouldn't come to them because he owns everything already and they are at his disposal. Verse 12 says at the second part, the world and all that it is in it is mine. Everything you call yours is God's. There is no such thing in human ownership. What we call ownership is trusteeship. You don't own anything in God's eyes. You are a trustee only. You own nothing. God owns everything. Now, to make that crystal clear, he spells it out in detail in verses 10 and 11. He goes from the general statement in verse 12 where he says, all the world is mine, to the very nitty-gritty of 10 and 11, every beast of the forest is mine. 
All the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I know all the birds of the air and all that moves in the field is mine. Now, what's the point of that kind of detail? Well, just so we don't miss the point. He knows the name of every bird. And I don't just mean Robin. I mean Joe Robin. Mary Robin. Robin with this chromosomal makeup. And not that one. I know every Robin. Remember what Jesus said? Not a bird falls from the sky apart from my Father's will. That's true in the deepest, darkest, uninhabited jungle of Africa. When a bird goes kaploop of old age, God appointed it. He owns every animal, knows every animal. From the bugs of the field, every flea on every rat on every boat in Singapore. Or Hong Kong or Baltimore. God knows every animal, has everyone named, owns it. By virtue of his creation. And not only the bugs of the field, but the birds of the air, the wild beasts of the forest, the domestic animals on the hills. It's all God. You can't miss the point. You own nothing. In your pockets, your clothes, your car, your food, your toys, your real estate is God's. Not yours. You are a trustee by virtue of his grace. And that means a lot about not just what you give on Sunday, but what you do with every penny you spend of God's money. Now, they did not catch on to this. And therefore, the mindset as they came to worship was, we are giving to God so that he can now have what he didn't possess or we're meeting a deficiency, or we're filling a need, or something like that. And when God gets the roles reversed with man that way, he gets very angry. And takes them to the courtroom and puts them on trial. And teaches them how to sing the song that we like to sing. We give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. Did you catch that? We give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone. O Lord, a, what's the next word? Trust from thee. We don't have anything but what is God's. And everything I own is God's clothing, God's food, God's computer, God's house, God's hosepipe, God's bicycles, God's bag of fertilizer. It's all God's. And therefore... I spread it for God's glory. I ride it for God's glory. I type on it for God's glory. I wear it for God's glory. Or I uh, abort in my calling as a trustee. The next thing we read after the indictment, the sentence, and the rationale is the correction. And here we get very, very close to what we need to hear for ourselves. It's in verses 14. In the first half of verse 15, he gives three, three corrections to the mindset that is making him so angry. One, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Second, pay your vows to the Most High. Third, call upon me in the day of trouble. Now let's look at those one at a time. 
the corrected mindset with which we should come to God, with which we should handle all of His possessions, is first, come with thanksgiving. Let every contribution you make be a contribution of thanksgiving. Why? Two reasons. One, everything you have to give is God's already. You have it in your hand because God put it in your hand. Secondly, if you've got a will to give it right here, God put it there. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you to will His good pleasure. Hebrews 13.21, He is at work in you willing what is pleasing in His sight. If you've got a will to give, God gave the willing. And if you've got a thing to give, God gave the thing. Therefore, every gift is God's gift to God. From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. And the link of all of those, humanly, is gratitude and dependence and reliance upon the great sovereign grace of God that has put everything into our hands and is calling us to give them to His cause. The second element in the corrected mindset is paying of vows. Now, this is a new thing for many, perhaps. I wonder how many of you in your life have ever made a vow to God and kept it with integrity. Let's define vow, first of all, by turning to Psalm 66. A few pages over, perhaps, in your Bible. Psalm 66, a good definition of a vow is given in verses 13 and 14. I will come into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. It's a very familiar thing. You're in desperate trouble. The day of trouble has drawn near. You are on the brink of something terrible happening. You get on your face before the Lord and you cry out for His help in the day of trouble. And God puts it in your heart to make a vow. If you deliver me, I will blank. You fill it in. And what our text is saying is, the right mindset is never to lie to God in that regard. Pay your vows to the Most High. Let me give you an illustration from my own life. I haven't made many vows. It says in Deuteronomy 23, 21 following, that vows are holy discretionary in the lives of God people. He never commands that they take a vow in this regard. But that they keep with unfailing integrity the vows that they make. When I was a junior in college, uh, many of you know I've said this before, growing up through high school, I could not speak in front of a group. It was physically impossible for me. I trembled so violently and my throat closed up so completely I would leave the room when my turn came. I took C's in civics class because they made us give oral book reports and I would not do it. I never ran for office in high school because you had to give campaign speeches. 
And when I got to college, I just cried and cried for the Lord to overcome this because I knew it would hamstring me in my life for a long time. And I began to have a breakthrough my sophomore year when I took Spanish and had to give a three-minute speech in Spanish. I stumbled through that with moderate embarrassment. And then the summer of 66, between my sophomore and junior year, the chaplain asked me to pray in chapel. You're not talking 15 Spanish students. You're talking hundreds of students and faculty to pray in chapel. And God gave me the crazy courage to say, okay, I'll do it. And you talk about warfare. And this is such a silly little thing, isn't it? It's all-consuming to me in those days. I got on my face before the Lord and I said, Now, tomorrow, if you will free my throat, because what used to happen was I couldn't talk at all. If you, would, if you would free my throat and let me pray, I will never again turn down a speaking opportunity for you out of fear. And he got me through it. And I haven't, I don't think, for 22 years, turned down a speaking opportunity out of fear. That's why I pray real hard about the opportunities that come my way to make sure my motives are right. And perhaps you could tell stories of God's faithfulness in your own life. I want to make sure that you understand, paying a vow is not paying a salary. It's not paying a bribe either. It is an act of faith in this regard. As you look back on the day of trouble when He delivered you, you say, praise God, He came through for me. He's good, He's gracious, He's powerful. I trusted Him then, now I've made a promise and I will trust Him to come through in the day when that promise must be fulfilled. And so what you're talking about in this, quote, payment is an obedience of faith in the all-sufficient power of God who demonstrated itself in the past and promises itself in the future. That's what the payment means. It's an act of faith that glorifies the all-sufficiency of God. The third element in the corrected mindset is calling upon God in the day of trouble. The first was be grateful. The second was pay your vows. The third was call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer you. So God wants to be called upon. He doesn't want us to get our roles reversed as though He's the one calling and saying, Oh, where are my cows? I'm so hungry. But rather, we are to call upon, Oh God, owner of everything, owner of all the money, all the resources, we as a church are $160,000 behind budget Come in the day of trouble, demonstrate your power, and we will glorify you during prayer week like we never had before. That's the kind of calling he wants to hear. That's the third change in the mindset. Now, the last thing in the text is the goal of God, the judge, in this trial. What is the purpose of calling his people into the courtroom and putting them on trial? The ultimate purpose is described very clearly in verse 15, second half of the verse, I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. 
So God's goal is to answer their cry that they might glorify Him. Or to put it like this, God's purpose is our good and His glory. Or His glory in and through our good. We get delivered. He gets admired. We get the salvation. He gets the exaltation. We get satisfied. He gets glorified. This is the essence of biblical religion. This is the nature of our God. He is pursuing His glory through showing mercy to His people that they might delight and worship and follow and obey an all-sufficient fountain of grace forever and ever. I will deliver you. You will glorify me. You are in need. I'm all-sufficient. That's the way I should be worshipped. Now, that's the end of the exposition. Let's close with five points of application to our church and our own personal financial lives. Because I realize there is an incredibly close connection between the, the financial solvency of the ministries of this church and your financial solvency. Which is why I asked the Lord why the stock market dove on Friday before this sermon. This is not unusual for God to do things like this. And why my car broke down this week. And my son's car broke down this week. And I think there are purposes for that. Application number one. Keep God great in your eyes. Keep God great. Don't ever let there enter your mind a little God, a weak God, a dependent God, a weary God, a God who is uh, at a loss without His people's contributions. Don't ever let that kind of God enter your mind. I've been dictating letters to missionaries this week, some of them, and I have felt led in every letter to dictate the same thing. In fact, I got to the point where I said, Shelley, go back to that other letter and just type those two paragraphs. And what I was saying was, God is like a volcano that has existed from all eternity, will exist to all eternity, that is erupting with omnipotent power, with joy and exuberance over who He is and what He plans to do for the good of His people forever and ever. And He never wearies. He never stops. You know, volcanoes that we read about in history, let's say, here was a volcano that blew an island apart 300 years ago. And the ash went around the world and caused funny sunsets for three weeks. But poof, it was over. It was gone. God erupts incessantly with omnipotent joy and exuberance over His own glory and what He plans to do in your life. And when you wake up on some morning and you're just dead, tired and drooping and you wonder, oh man, how am I going to get through this day? Let there enter your mind that God has not wearied one millimeter. He is infinitely enthusiastic, infinitely, omnipotently energetic in His zeal for His name. And to keep that kind of God in your mind is a great resource for restored power when we think everything is sort of winding down in my life and in history. and It's never winding down. God never, ever rests. Second, believe His promises in verse 15. Believe His promises in verse 
15, or his promise in verse 15. Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. In the day of financial trouble, trust God. Now remember, he's talking to people here who are on trial and guilty. Now be encouraged by this. Because some of you come in here and you say, oh, fine, those promises are for nice religious people who, who live on the up and up. He's talking to people on trial who've just had their worship life canceled out. And he says to those guilty people, you call on me in the day of trouble and I'll answer you and deliver you. Does that encourage you this morning? If you came in here feeling on trial before God... Guilty before his bar, wondering if you're going to be sentenced to death, and you hear the judge at the end of the courtroom say, Call on me, and I'll deliver you. I'll acquit you. And you'll spend the rest of your life glorifying me, which is what I want you to do. So be encouraged to trust in this promise. It applies to everybody who will believe it. And the third thing is call on the Lord. Once you believe the Lord, call on the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Don't lose heart. Wait for the Lord. I know some of you have called on the Lord for months about financial things. And you're still in an incredible stress. But wait patiently for the Lord. Like David did in Psalm 40. He will lift you up out of the miry clay. Put your feet on a rock. Put a new song in your mouth. A song of praise to God. Many will see and repent and put their trust in the Lord. Don't prejudice God's timing. Be open and wait for its goodness. It will come at the right time for you. The fourth thing of application is if God leads, make a vow to the Lord in your day of distress. Let me give you an example of the kind of thing that I think could be a means of amazing resources for our church and for your life. Suppose... This is a true story from my life this week. Suppose on Thursday morning, uh, you take your car in because you've got this rub, 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 rub sound in the back to the dealer. And uh, they call you at 10 o'clock and say, your, your axle bearings in the back are shot and the metal has gone all through the axle. And so we have to replace both rear axles and, and the axle bearings. It costs $750. And you gasp and you go, why another one of these crazy things? Lord, don't you know that uh, this money is yours and it ought to go to church instead? Isn't there any other way? Nope. Okay, go ahead. And you look at your wife and you sit down for lunch an hour later. And as you're praying, you sense led of the Holy Spirit to pray, Lord, look, you rule over this dealer and his mechanics Make it come in cheaper. And uh, and then your wife goes down to pick up the car. You ever seen one of these before? <laughs> See, she goes in to pick up the car and says $528 at the bottom. That's a lot of money. But evidently, when I said, yes, fix it, I had in my mind the possibility that we would not starve and die. It would come out of savings or somewhere, and we would fix the car. Now, what ought to happen? Here. Take the family out to dinner on the $222 that we saved. 
you write a check to Bethlehem for $222. That's the way we'll make it. You make a vow. Lord, we need to have the house painted. Reckon it'll cost $2,500. You get me a bid for $1,500, i will give 1000 to the church. Lord, we need to have the furniture reupholstered. Big hole in the middle of the couch. I heard one estimate for $250. You bring it in at $100, i will give $150 to the church. And on and on and on in your life, this is one of the places where I believe God means for vows to free you. God knew that I wouldn't have given that $222. This over and above our regular giving. This is not just the way to give. God knew that I could live without that because I knew that I could when I said I would pay the 751 to quality Mercury Lincoln. And therefore, he said, okay, if, if you can afford to live without those $750, then I'll bring it in at 528 And we'll see whether you can live without that. So the fourth recommendation I have to you is contemplate the making of vows in your life. And fifth, when God delivers us as a church and delivers you from your financial distress, let's give Him glory. Let's give Him the glory. Now, I want to close with one last thing. I feel, and I've felt this for quite a few weeks, that as, as I've watched, watched us fall behind farther and farther in our giving, I said, there's only one thing that's going to bail us out at the end of this year, and that's extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary calling upon the Lord. And God might be willing to heed and do some extraordinary things. And so here's what I'm, I'm going to do by way of another vow, and I invite you to join with me, at least partly. I simply have decided through many, many long days of praying about this that I will be here at the church every Friday morning for the rest of the year from 6.30 to 7 o'clock to pray about finances. I have two other things I'm going to include in that prayer, too. I'm going to pray very specifically that we have known and called a minister for children's discipleship by Thanksgiving. And two, that people will be saved every week for the rest of this year through the ministry of this church. Those three things, that we not fail in any of our financial giving, children's minister, and salvation. For half an hour, I'm going to be in that room behind that wall right there. From 6.37. The reason from 6.30 to 7 on Friday is because that's the one day when I'm never out of town. And second, I want to be home to pray with my family at 7.15 before the boys goes off to school. So, if you want to join me any Friday morning, you're welcome to come. I'll be here regardless, Lord willing. Pray for me in that regard. And if that's not a good time for you, as we close right now and bow our heads... You just contemplate your own vows before the Lord. Let's take a minute in silence and see how he leads us.